to see the noble response. Now, last week we saw that when the, the gospel, as it arrived in Europe, we saw that in chapter 16, the gospel arrived in Europe and it took place in the heart, it, uh, it took root in the hearts of two Philippians, that's Lydia and, and the Philippian jailer and their, household, and their households. And after those events, Paul and his companions travel southwestward uh, towards Thessalonica and Berea. And in these two areas, as he arrives in Thessalonica and then he arrives also in Berea, Luke's, Luke has two focuses. There's two things that Luke wants us to notice in this as he writes. The first and primary one is to contrast for us the attitude of the Jews in Thessalonica to the attitude of the Jews in Berea. He wants us to see that difference of how the Thessalonica, how, the, how when the, the, the Jews in Thessalonica received the gospel, how did they react? And he wants us to also see how the Bereans react in contrast to that. But he also has a second focus, and that focus is to once again show that Christianity is not a rabble-rousing religion of political revolution, but that of messianic fulfillment. Remember, we touched on this last week. Saw this last week that that Luke spends a lot of time showing that the imprisonment of the apostles was not actually just. We saw that in Philippi last week, and we're seeing it again today, that all this rabble-rousing that's happening is actually not genuine. It's, from, it's by people who are coming in from the side and saying things that are not true. I won't spend much time on the second focus this morning. Uh, because of time, I want us really to, fo to focus on his first and primary focus, which is to contrast the attitudes of the Jews in Thessalonica and the Jews in Berea. Now, I want you to note uh, a few things in the way that Luke writes the narrative here. Luke records for us here in verse 1, uh, in verse 1 and 2, and in verse 10, that Paul and his companions arrived in both of these cities and preached to the Jews in the synagogue. Do you see that? He says, as was his custom, in verse 1, says they came there to the, to the synagogue of the Jews, and as was his custom, he went in. So this is something that he did often, and we've already seen that. That's a pattern in his ministry. It's the same thing in verse 10. When they arrived in Berea, the first place that he goes, he goes to the synagogue. And so this is setting up the scene for us that this, this primary focus that he has here is with particularly those who are Jews who have the Old Testament. And you'll see why that is important in a moment. Second, following from this, I want you to notice the focus of his preaching in both of these places. The focus of his preaching in, here in chapter 17 in in Thessalonica, in the synagogue, and in Berea, is summarized in verse 3. Let me read from verse 2. And as was his custom, Paul went into them, and on three Sabbath days he discussed with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So what's the focus of his message as he arrives in Thessalonica and as he arrives in Berea? We know that this summary is exactly the same thing that happens, of course, in verse 13. Because in verse 13, he preaches the same thing that he preached in Thessalonica. So what's the, what's the, what's the summary, what's the point of his 
sermon. His sermon has three points. It's a very good Baptist sermon. Three points. Number one, the Messiah had to die. Number two, the Messiah had to rise. And number three, the Messiah is Jesus Christ. Those are the three points. Number one, the Messiah had to die. Number two, the Messiah had to rise. It was necessary for him to die and to rise. And that Messiah is the Christ. The, the, the pre, this preaching is straightforward and it challenges the Jews on their interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures with regards to the Messiah. You see, the expectation by and large by the Jews was that a Messiah was coming, but the Messiah that was going to come, he was going to come and immediately liberate the people of God, which is true in one sense. He is going to come and liberate the people of God, but the nature of the liberation is what Paul came and threw a spanner in. Paul comes to them and he argues, he explains, he demonstrates there in verse 3 and reasons with the Jews to show them that you guys are actually wrong. The Messiah had to die and he had to rise. Now, this is huge news. Now you're, you're living here today in Johannesburg. This is what You've heard this many times, Jesus died and rose again, Jesus rose and rose again. And you've also heard, Jesus died and rose again, and Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. You've heard that many times. But for them, this was huge news, to be told that the Messiah had to die and had to rise. For late Second Temple Judaism, which is the period that we're dealing with, this is the time, it's the Second Temple, it's this era is called a late, late era, uh, late Second Temple Judaism, the expectation was either for a Messiah who would be a king priest or a warrior judge. Now, there were multiple groups, there were multiple sects of people within Judaism, and, uh, and some of them we see in the scriptures. In, in Christian speak, we could say within Judaism at that time, there were multiple denominations. You'll remember, of course, the Pharisees who excelled in following the law of Moses. There were also the Sadducees who generally possessed a greater amount of political influence as a result of their historical past as chief priests. There were also the Herodians. This is a term used to define the Jews who supported the Herodian dynasty. And there were also the Zealots, uh, those Jews who opposed often violently the rule of, the, of Palestine by the Romans. And the last group that we know of was the Essenes, a group that was generally viewed as an apocalyptic group. They, they, they dealt with the end, the end of all things most of the time. That's where that, a lot of the data we have about them says. These different groups, just like you'd find in different Christian denominations, they did not all expect the same thing of the Messiah. They didn't all expect everything to happen in exactly the same way. They all came at the Messiah, when he comes, is going to come, and this is what's going to happen. They all came at, it, came at it from different angles, but they were generally unified in the bare basics. And the bare, the bare basics of what they expected from the Messiah was this, that he will be a political, religious ruler who is a descendant of David, whose arriving will mean the freedom of the Jews from the Romans. That's what they expected at this time. They, they might have differed on the, pay, on the, on the points, but they, they diverged on a lot of issues, of course. But the one thing that was clear about them is that the Messiah is going to come and his advent, his showing up, means 
the, the end of the Romans and the rule of Israel. But one thing that we do not find, the scholars have studied and from the data that we have, one thing that you do not find in the late Second Temple Judaism from this, this time, one thing you do not find is a dying Messiah. There, there is almost no expectation from anyone, any teachers at the time, any scribes, any preachers, there's, all, there's no evidence that anybody believed that the Messiah is going to come and die. For them, the word Messiah means king who's going to come and rule immediately. So in, 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 Luke's, in Luke's two volume work, this is actually a huge theme in both Luke and in Acts. It's the theme of Luke chapter 24, and, the, and uh, it's also the theme of when the apostles uh, witnessed to the Jewish and Gentile leaders in Acts chapter 3, all the way to Acts chapter 26, and it is certainly Paul's major point here. The fact that the Messiah had to die first and then rise from the dead. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a novel Christian message, but it really is the Old Testament's message. The death and resurrection of Christ is not a Pauline invention that could not be found before Paul, before Peter, but rather it was, it's, it's embedded in the Old Testament expectation. Anyone who properly understood the Old Testament would understand that the Messiah had to die and rise. That's the argument that the Lord Jesus says in Luke 24. Remember when the Lord, in Luke 24, the Lord, three, three times we see this happen. But in one, in one instance, the Lord is finding his disciples weeping and crying, uh, walking on the road to Emmaus. And they're, they're, they're sad. And he says, why are you guys sad? And they explain to him, well, we hoped that Jesus would be the Messiah that would come and liberate us. And then Jesus calls them fools. He says, you fools, you are slow to heart, of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken. It was necessary that the Messiah die and then rise from the dead. And then he took them through the Old Testament. He does that again when he meets the disciples at the end of Luke chapter 24. And it's the same thing that the angel says to the women that come. When the women come, at the beginning of chapter 24, the women come, they see the empty tomb and they're sad. They're like, oh, what happened to Jesus? Jesus is dead. What happened to his body? And then the angel calls them out and says, why are you looking for a living person among the dead? You're supposed to know that this guy was supposed to die, but like he told you, he would rise again. The Messiah is going to rise again. So Paul arriving in both of these cities with this message, this three-point sermon, that he had to die, he had to rise again, and his name is Jesus Christ, that, that rocks them. It's, it's a huge message. It's something that is amazing to them that if you think about all the preaching that had happened, if anybody had preached the Messiah who arrives and just takes over Rome immediately, that guy was wrong. And Paul is coming here and calling them all to be wrong. I want you to notice a few things here. Uh, years of labor among the Jewish scribes. Years of preaching was wrong. Decades of teaching was wrong. Now imagine somebody comes and tells you everything that you've labored for, every, not everything, but particularly a big part of your message 
that you have said, that you have given hope to people with, that you have consoled people with, the Messiah is going to come, and he's coming and saying, you're wrong, you didn't understand that properly. You didn't understand that properly. It's, it's, I mean, I don't know, what, what's, what's a belief that you hold to, that you've hold to a lot, that maybe you've comforted with a lot, that this, I'm holding on to this. This, this, this belief is, is, is important to me, it warms me, it's a, it's a message of encouragement of my people, and then somebody just comes and says, you're wrong. Imagine if, if, if you have a lot, for many years, many years, when things were going wrong in life, where situations were going pear-shaped, you always knew we have our ancestors. We have them, let's go to them. Let's go and, let's go and, let's go and talk to them. Let's go and do something. Let's go and speak to them. They, they, they are saying something to us in this. If you have held that for many years, decades even, it's the message that, that, that is, is preaching liberation to you. The Bible says you're wrong. How you respond to that is crucial. If you have long convinced yourself that, listen, we're all just a, a product of evolution. Nothing really matters. My conscience, I should just shut down and quieten my conscience because nothing really matters. We're all just doing what we're doing. We're all just living the way that we're living. We're all just, we're just a product of soup. There's no God. There's no end in this. There's no judgment of any kind. And so I'm comforted. I've done wrong things, but hey, there's no judgment, so it's fine. Or I've done horrific things. I've, I've escaped from something. I did something bad. I've escaped. Nobody caught me. I'm not in trouble. You've, you've calmed yourself down with that message. The Bible comes and says, you're wrong. Paul comes and says, you're, you're wrong. Jesus has risen from the dead. He will judge you. How you respond to that is crucial. Many people, all of us, have held to things, even dearly so, but how we respond to when we are questioned, when we are told that the way that we have held to is not true, tells us everything you need to know about us. There's a second thing. There's a second point I want you to note. If Paul is correct, because remember, Paul's sermon is three points. The first point is that the Messiah had to die. The second point, the Messiah had to rise. And the third point is, that, that Messiah that had to die and rise is Jesus. So it's not that, oh, let's just do a Bible study and then now we're still waiting for him. No, no, no. He came, he died and he rose again. His name was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If that, if Paul is true, then the Jewish nation was wrong to kill him. Now imagine you're at this time, you're the people of God scattered about in Thessalonica and Berea. You're scattered abroad you're being oppressed by the Romans and, you, and the one thing you're holding on to is that you are the people of God and you are the people that God hears when you cry. You are guiltless because you are loved by God. You are the, you are the guiltless people, the exalted people of God. And here Paul is coming and saying, your generation killed your own Messiah. Your generation killed your liberator. That's a huge deal to people. That, that's something that's going to rub against something. What, what, what are you saying? You're, not only are you saying that we've been wrong with, the, with how we've interpreted what the, what the Messiah is going to do when he comes, but now you're telling us that we are culpable for his death. 
Now you're telling us that our leaders representing us gave him up to the Romans to be killed. Again, huge news to the people of the time. So how do they respond? How is this message received? Well, there's two responses. There's the Thessalonian Thessalonian response, and then there's the Berean response. Let's look at the Thessalonian response. Uh, Verse 5. Oh, verse 4. And some of them, so these are the people in the synagogue, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and also a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few of the prominent women. But the Jews were filled with jealousy, and taking along some worthless men from the rabble in the marketplace and forming a mob, they threw the city in opera, and they attacked Jason's house. What do we see? First, we see that among the people there, many believe. Some are persuaded by Paul's reasoning from the Old Testament, and they believe not only that the Messiah had to rise and had to die and had to rise, but also that that Messiah is Jesus Christ, and he has died and has risen. But what do the Jewish leaders do, the ones who were leading and teaching this? Well, verse 5 tells us, when it says there, but the Jews were filled with jealousy, sometimes when you see the word Jews, and we've seen it before as well in the book of Acts, when he says the Jews, he's meaning really the Jewish leaders, those who are leading the Jewish people. Well, what do they do? What, what should they do when they hear this message? Do they interact? Do they delve deep into the word to try and understand if, if Paul's three-point sermon has any veracity in the Bible? No. No, they're not. What they are is they are filled with jealousy. Why are they filled with jealousy? They're filled with jealousy because, like he just said, many Greeks and some very prominent members of the city believed in Paul's message. These God-fearing Greeks that who followed these are God-fearing Greeks who followed Judaism to some degree, like we saw in Cornelius in chapter 10. And now they're switching from following Judaism to some degree, and they're following entirely Christianity. So they are leaving, because they were were around the synagogue, and now this, this Paul has come and proclaimed that these guys have been wrong in what they've preached for all these years about the Messiah. They're wrong. The Messiah actually had to die. He had to rise, and his name is Jesus. And then the people, the swaths, look at what he said. Look at how he describes it there in verse 4. Some of them, some of those who were Jewish were persuaded, but also a large number of God-fearing Greeks. Lots of the Greeks, lots of the Greeks who had a lot of the money also, because this was their city, and a lot of the prominent women. So these are, some of them are, are prominent women by lineage, but a lot of them are prominent women by being wives of prominent men in the city. So it's like all the intelligentsia and all the money, all the, the strength of this city is now moving from Judaism to Paul's message of Christianity. And how do the leaders respond? They don't interact with the truth. They respond with jealousy. They respond with jealousy. They, they close their minds to the truth and they allow their jealousy to dictate how they act. There is a phenomenon that is currently an intrigue. I found this out this week. 
It's currently an intrigue in philosophical and psychological studies, and that phenomenon is willful ignorance. And particularly, there's a discussion in philosophy about whether or not this willful ignorance is irrational or is a, a preservation of autonomy, a sort of coping mechanism. A, a recent paper explained this phenomenon this way. Various psychological studies have now confirmed that there are different situations in which the majority of people would not want to know something in order to avoid pain, regret, or anxiety. In some cases, people still choose to remain ignorant of something even if they would highly benefit without any material cost to them from the act of acquiring that information. For example, many patients who suffer from chronic diseases avoid getting information about their health even if such knowledge is free and would permit them to cope better, to manage their symptoms better and to live longer lives they still choose to just close their minds and not listen to the information. There is an ignorance, a sort of happiness with not wanting to change and consistently wanting to continue in the knowledge that I have. What we have in front of us, friends, is our first specimen of the Jews at Thessalonica. This is a foolishness of the highest order. To not go to the doctor to understand what you have so that you can manage it properly, I think you and I could say that's irrational. To not go to the doctor, you have something, you have an ailment, you don't want to go and get information so that you can manage it because you're just happy with the knowledge that you know. You know, let me continue eating my sweets. James says it is foolish for a man to look at himself in the mirror and then proceed to forget what he looks like. But what is actually even more foolish than that is that a man does not go to the mirror in the first place. Imagine you're going to an interview. You know, you've got this big interview lined up. And in the morning, you have to get dressed and proper to put your best foot forward. And then you just decide, I'm not even going to look at the mirror. I'm not going to look at how I look. I'm just going to put these things together. I'm not going to make sure that I look nice. I've brushed my teeth. I'm not going to check if there's no toothpaste, you know. I'm not going to do anything. like. I'm just going to go confident, boldly into the interview. No, if, if, number one, that person probably doesn't have a wife, but because your wife will call you out. <laughs> you know, and the Lord gave us wives to help us uh, to, be, to, to be neat. But number two, we would, we would all say, you don't, what, what are you doing? Sort yourself out, ensure that you're prepared. You students going to an exam, not looking at the, at the syllabus or looking at the exam things to ensure that you're right. You know, I had a friend in, in university who just, he did not want to know what he doesn't know. What he did was, he, he always just ensured, I've read the book backwards and forwards. I don't, don't give me the study notes. Don't tell me what the lecturer said is going to come out. I don't trust him anyway. I'm just, I'm just going to go into the exam believing that I know what I, that I'm just going to know what I know. He, he, he ended up passing, but <laughs> which, which breaks my analogy. Okay. These Jews, these, these, these leaders of the Jewish people here are choosing to not actually investigate the matter. They're choosing to not actually hear exactly what their condition is and what, to interact with this 
All they are, and you might wonder to yourself, okay, what could convince somebody to act with such willful ignorance, to have such willful ignorance? Well, in the case of, you know, a diabetic maybe, they might say, I don't want to be told to not have ice cream again, so I'm just going to eat ice cream, I'm just going to not going to find out. Or, in a, you know, if you have some kind of sickness that deals with your tummy, I don't want to know. Some of us are coffee addicts and we don't want to admit it. So we don't want to find out if we're coffee addicts or not. We just drink our cup of coffee every day. Well, in this case, what is it that's causing them to not want to hear and interact with the truth? Jealousy. A tightening. You know that feeling that comes up here on the throat? I, 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 you know, I'd listen to you, but I just can't right now because everybody's listening to you. Jealousy. I want what you have. They wanted the, these, these prominent people and these many Greeks to continue with them in the temple. They did not want them to go to Paul. Now they've gone to Paul, not interested in listening at all. Don't want to interact with you at all. We, we're just going to shut you down and, and, cause, and, cause, and cause an entire opera in the city. Friends, do not, the, 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 the worst thing you can do for yourself is to allow a passion of the flesh to cause you to act irrationally. Come with me for a moment. Hold your place. Come with me for a moment to Galatians 5. Do not allow a passion of the flesh to move you, to control you, to act in an irrational manner. Look at what Paul says, Galatians chapter 5 from verse 16. But I say, live by the Spirit, and you will never carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh, desire, for the flesh desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that whatever you want, you may not do those things. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outposts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, things which I am telling you in advance, just as I have said before, that the ones who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Did you notice in the list of things that Paul says we should not do what was in there? Jealousy. But jealousy does not come alone. Jealousy has a lot of siblings. Did you see jealousy's siblings? His friends, his chummies that he goes and, and, and acts around with. All of these things. Envy, enmity, strife, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition. Do not let these things control you to make you act out irrationally. Do not let any of these passions dictate how you act. Do not let yourself be controlled by a fleeting feeling of heightened emotion or a considered feeling of lasting lust. Don't let either of those things, even if it's for a spur of the moment or something that you've been nurturing for a while, do not let those things, if they're found in this list, and list like it to control how you act. Because these things, they do not cause you to think properly. These lusts, these passions, they control and they mangle you and it's almost like they, they stop the blood from flowing to your brain. You stop thinking properly and you start thinking irrationally and you can actually end up in a manner that hurts yourself. You're hurting yourself. Do not click on that. 
Do not click on that, on that thing. Just because of a moment. Just because you're, you're feeling lonely, it's tired at night. Do not click on that button. If you know, you shouldn't click on it. Don't watch it. Do not speak that word to somebody just because you're feeling some type of way. Don't speak it. Hold it in. Ensure that your actions are always controlled by considered godly righteousness. Ensure, fight, that your actions are always, you can always point, my action now is motivated by godliness, by these scriptures. If you allow yourself to be controlled by a feeling, allow yourself to be controlled by, by a momentary annoyance, just a, oh, you know that, huh? Or am I the only one who, <laughs> you know that, 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 you know what? You know, they did it, you see now, again, I told you, I warned you. Don't, don't. Friends, it's a high bar, but we are those who have the Spirit of God. We need to use the resources of God given to us to fight against these things. Praise, thanks be to God that we are not condemned because of all of this. Because if, if God would judge us because of this, we would all be condemned. But in Christ Jesus, we're saved. But he did not save us so that we can continue being controlled by jealousy. That we can continue being controlled by lust, by enmity, by strife, by divisions. I follow this guy. I like this guy better than that one. Well, my guy is better than your guy. I have a, this, I have a better thing than you. Are better. Do not be controlled. That is, it is, do not be a, a willful ignoramus because of your passions. When God speaks, bow. When a word of the Lord comes, bow. That's the, that's the ignorant. Now let's look at the noble from verse 10. Now the brothers sent away both Paul and Silas at once during the night to Berea. They went into the synagogue of the Jews when they arrived. And now these were more open-minded. They were more noble. There's a better translation. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They accepted the message with all eagerness, examining the scriptures every day to see if these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and not a few of the prominent Greek women and men. Luke here contrasts directly the ignorant Thessalonians to the noble Bereans. We know that Paul came doing the same thing, as was his custom. He, did. he probably approached in exactly the same way. He didn't change his message. He preached exactly the same thing, but the, but the result is different because of the different kinds of people. The ones in Berea were brutes, the ones in Thessalonica were brutes, controlled by passions, but the ones in Berea were noble men. The word used by Luke here, that is, that is in, uh, translated as noble, sometimes open-minded, is really a word literally that means well-born, coming from a superior lineage. It's, some, it's a word that speaks of somebody's social standing in society. So in society, it, here in, in, in the Greek world, some are called barbarians, but some are called, no, called noble, well-born, coming from a pure lineage. Luke takes this term, that the Gentiles would have used to make distinctions among themselves, and here he takes it 
and he applies it in a spiritual sense. There is a spiritual barbarian and there is a spiritual noble. And the thing that separates the spirit, at least in this example, the thing that separates the spiritual barbarian and the spiritual noble is their attitude when they're hearing the word of God and it confronts them on, on a belief that they've, heard, that they've held that was wrong. You see this. Paul came with the same three-point message that the Messiah had to die, had to rise, and, that, and his name is Jesus. And he's coming to the Bereans and the Bereans sit down, they receive it, and they open up the word and they examine it for themselves to see is it really so? Is there really any evidence in the Scriptures that the Messiah was going to die? Is there any evidence in the Scriptures that the Messiah was going to rise again? And because of that attitude, Luke calls them noble, highborn. The Jews in Thessalonica acted like brutes, brutes who cannot think, incapable of rational reasoning, who are led by appetite and brutality rather than by truth and reality. The Bereans, however, their attitude had a godly spirit of investigation of the truth to see it in the scriptures rather than rejection of the truth, of the truth based on irrational grounds. The reason that the Jews in Thessalonica rejected the message wasn't because of the message. It was because other people accepted the message. How foolish is that? I'm not going to follow you and go with you because there's so many people who agree with you. Well, but what if he's telling the truth? Right? They just chose, because people are going away from you and they're leaving me, I don't want any, I don't want any part of this. So what is the difference? What is the difference between these two groups? Let's, let's, I want to point to us three points on the difference between these two groups as we come to a close. Number one, the attitude of the Bereans is to be commended primarily because it was a humble attitude. It was a, a humble attitude of learning. I want you to think with me. Paul did not come here with any physical evidence of Jesus' resurrection. He didn't come with photographs or anything proving that Jesus rose from the dead. Or he came just primarily with an argument from the Scriptures. And so they were saying, you are coming, speaking from the scriptures. Let's sit down and see if these things are so. That meant that the, that the Bereans had to accept that their knowledge of an immediately reigning Messiah was lacking. The Bereans also had to accept that their generation of Jews was wrong for killing the Messiah. These are not small things. It is an attitude of humble learning. So to you, therefore, let me com commend to you humility. Let me commend to you the grace of humility. To humble yourself when you're challenged with the scriptures. To humble yourself when you're challenged by the word of God. To not assume that you, that you are the judge. You are the, you are the one who decides what's true or not. But to go to the word of God and let the word of God be over you. I don't really care who comes and says it. Is it true? Did God say this? Okay, so you're, you're saying that we're wrong, but are you right? Let's see it. Yes, it is. We were wrong. Praise God. We're believing in the Messiah. And they believed in him. I mean, commend to you the attitude of humility. 
we, as believers, we could never say this enough. It's come up a few times in the book of Acts. And I think it should come up. It's, it's good to mention it here again. Fight with all your might against anything that, that removes from you humility. With all of your might, oppose anything in you that causes you to have a fat head where you cannot be instructed. To, to, that causes you to have an inflated view of your own knowledge. See, because that's what Paul says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge does what? Puffs up. It fills up like it's like a, it's like a, if you have a lot of knowledge, you can be puffed up like a helium balloon. But we ought to be those who are humble. Humbling ourselves constantly. Let me check that. I might have been wrong. Let me, let me seek in the word of God if this is true. The second reason why they are to be commended, really, I want you to notice this one thing that's missing in both of these narratives entirely. And I think it's on purpose why Luke, Luke says nothing. There's one thing. What is it that's been happening whenever they go to a place and preach the gospel? People are saved. Some people oppose. But what else happens? Miracles. Did you notice that there's an absence of miracles here? It's not a single miracle. There's no miracle in the entire chapter 17. There's no miracle. It's all entirely knowledge. It's all about the truth. It's about the truth coming in and what kind of person receives that truth. Luke does not mention any miracles here which would have authenticated the message. And yet the Bereans believed it. They receive it. Why? While God provides miracles as a proof for the message, it is, it is a consistent witness of the New Testament that the ones who believe and trust the revelation of God without any physical proof are the most blessed and noble. The ones who receive the message without any proof are the ones who are most blessed and noble. Peter says, you have not seen him, you are precious. The Lord, to him, he, to, him to you, he is precious, sorry. The Lord Jesus twice addresses this when he says to the Jews, a wicked generation seeks for a sign. And then he also says to Thomas, you remember at the end, ah, Thomas, you now believe because you've seen me and you've touched me. But what does Jesus say? Blessed the one who has not touched me, has not seen me, and yet believes. The Bereans are to be commended because they went to the scriptures and believed without seeing any physical proof. This is an exalted attitude, a noble people. And finally, what really sets them apart, what really sets the Bereans apart, is that they sought the scriptures to see if these things were true. They placed a high premium on the scriptures, examining them. So what does this mean for us? This is what it means for us. The Lord Jesus says, repent and believe in him. The Lord Jesus says, repent of all the ways that you have walked in, the ways of your forefathers, the ways of the thought leaders of the day, the ways of anyone who does not bow to Christ, repent from all of those ways and believe in him. Your response ought to be, let me examine the scriptures and see if it is true. And if it is, believe. It's a matter of authority in Acts 17. And we'll see this more so next week. It's a matter of authority. Who is to be believed? Is it the wise and clever people? Is it the people who can argue their case the best? Or is it the people who have a pedigree, who've preached for a long time? Are those the people to be believed? And when Acts 17 is thrusting and saying to us very 
critically is this, the scriptures are to be believed. What comes from the word of God, that is what is to be believed. You receive it from the word of God. It is God who speaks. It is God who can liberate. And it is only in him, the God of the Jews, can we find rest. If your God is not the God that is found in the scriptures, if your God is not the God who brought again, to, brought to life his son Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell you, you are in trouble. Because that's not the true God. The, re- the true God, the powerful one, the real one who speaks, it is the one who brought the Messiah who died and rose again so that sins may be extinguished from the people of God. Do you have sins? Trust in this Messiah. Do you want to have a hope of a resurrection? Trust in this Messiah. Are you disappointed with life's troubles and hurts? You've trusted in all these other people and they've all disappointed you? Come to this Messiah. With Him there is surety and there is life. Only in Him, only in His name. Amen. Let's pray. We praise you, O Messiah, who came, took on yourself the sins of your people, crucified and crushed, hated by God in that moment as you became sin itself, so that your people might be your righteousness. Having not committed a single sin attributable to you, all that you had done was righteousness. And yet you were treated as filth. But then you rose again from the grave, vindicating your name as the true Messiah of God. And we praise you, Lord, and we ask that you might become precious to us and that your work might become more and more precious in our minds and in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are now about to move to some family business. Uh, And so we are saying goodbye to everyone who's online. Please do come and uh, visit us. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to say goodbye to some members who have moved to uh, other churches. Um, It's always sad when we have brothers.